God, thank you so much that we can rely on you and that even though you see everything about us, you know all our struggles, all our failures, all our weaknesses, you are strong. We can rely on you. We can trust you. Eternal God, you were there before there was ever time. And you're not particularly excited about the changing of the number on the year that we mark. We understand that you hold time in your hand, but you give it to us as a gift. And I pray that this year, this week, and this morning, you would draw us near and help us to grow closer to you. Speak to our hearts this morning, God, and we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're starting a new series today we're going to call Connecting with God. And, you know, FYI, being part of a small group experience has always been a significant part of my connection to God. I don't think this, by the way, is something that we can do alone. I want to ask you a question, give you about 10 seconds to think about it, and then I want you to stay in your seat, but I want you to turn to someone next to you and answer the question. This is something I'm not even sure I know about Diane, and I thought we knew all of one another's stories. We saw a video of a documentary over Christmas break because we spent Christmas break watching Netflix, basically. And we saw a documentary on a mountain climb back in the 80s that Jordan had recommended to us. And a guy breaks his leg and he gets lost and he's by himself and he is unbelievably thirsty. And he can't fully satisfy his thirst from snow. You just, you can't get enough of it. And I mean, I'm telling you, by the end of this documentary, I was exhausted, I was freezing cold, and I was dying of thirst. When is the time in your life when you have been the thirstiest? Can you remember? The thirstiest. I'm making some of you thirsty now, aren't I? When is the time when you've been the thirstiest? Turn to the person that you came with or someone next to you and tell them the time in your life when you've been the thirstiest. Okay. <laughs> I, actually talk, <laughs> I actually talked myself into being thirsty. I sent Diane to get me a cup of water. Okay, uh, dehydration occurs when water loss exceeds water intake, usually due to exercise or disease. Most people, listen to this. Now, this is from Wikipedia, so, you know, probably pretty reliable. Most people can tolerate a 3 to 4% decrease in body water without difficulty. 3 to 4%. A 5 to 8% decrease can cause fatigue and dizziness and result in symptoms mimicking heart attack or stroke. Some of you have experienced that. Over 10% can cause physical and mental deterioration, accompanied by, of course, severe thirst. Listen, a, a decrease of more than 15% of the body water is invariably fatal. We have to drink. Our body requires it. And the same is true for our souls. We have to nourish our souls with living water. They require it. And to do so, we have to nurture a connection with God. We have to nurture a real and dynamic connection with God in order to have healthy souls. We have to nurture a real and dynamic connection with God in order to have healthy souls. This is basic. This is a profoundly fundamental truth. It's both fundamental to the nature of things and it's fundamental to our well-being. We're going to look at an interesting passage of scripture from the Old Testament today that underscores this really basic fundamental truth. And I know that you're here this morning because in large measure, most of you agree with this. 
Let me set the stage for this Old Testament passage. First of all, the literary setting. This is an Old Testament prophet. This is Jeremiah. So if you're keeping score at home, open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is in the middle of the Old Testament. He's one of the most significant Old Testament prophets. And in this passage, as with a lot of Old Testament prophets, and Jeremiah in particular, Jeremiah, he's kind of riffing on a well-known legal concept, legal language of his day. This is the so-called rib pattern, R-I-B. That's the Hebrew word, rib. I'm not pronouncing it exactly right, but it's close. So in this section, and when he uses this pattern, Jeremiah is being sort of part lawyer, part rap artist, literally. And the rib pattern was a pattern, as I said, it was well known in the ancient Near East, and, and it was used in documents. So they found tons of documents that follow this rib pattern. It was used when an overlord or a greater king is making an accusation toward a lesser king for an act of rebellion. They had an agreement with one another, and the lesser king has not kept up their agreement. So the greater king sends a rib document to the lesser king. And here's the pattern that these documents would follow. First, that would be an appeal to the lesser king to pay attention and a summons of the heavens as witnesses against the lesser king. And then secondly, there would be a series of rhetorical questions which you know, they carry an implied answer of no or you failed or whatever. Then there would be a recollection of past benefits which the greater king offered the lesser king. And then there would be a reference to the futility of seeking any other solution outside of the greater king. And then there would be pronouncement of guilt and a threat of judgment. And this is exactly the pattern that Jeremiah, and as I said, many of the Old Testament prophets use, they're acting as God's lawyers and God's rap artists going to the people, and they present this pattern as a way of saying, look, you've blown it. This was half of Jeremiah's ministry. Secondly, you need to know the historical setting, and at this time when Jeremiah is writing this, Israel is a small uh, kind of fading regional power that's stuck between these big, huge national powers, Assyria and Egypt, and back and forth they would vacillate first one and then the other would exercise control over little Israel, and Israel would lean itself first one way and then the other in an effort to protect itself. And often when it did so, it would adopt the court practices and even the worship practices of the nation toward which it was leaning and from which it was seeking some assurances and some protection, often from the other one. And this practice Jeremiah finds reprehensible and he you know what he basically says is look your protection is found directly in your relationship with God and not in a connection with Assyria or with Egypt at the very end of this passage there is an analogy that's just all the money I mean it is you've got to hear the last verse so sometimes here at Gateway We will stand out of reverence for God's Word because that's what we believe the Bible is. We're not going to do that this morning until we get to the very end of the passage. So we're going to stand up for that last analogy because it is rich with meaning. But I want you to hear Jeremiah go through the rib pattern and then he'll offer up this analogy right at the very end. That's just, it's ridiculous. This will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but I'd love for you to follow along with me. Jeremiah chapter 2. The Word of the Lord came to me. Go proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. And literally, this 
translates the phrase literally, shout in the ears of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness through a land not sown. Old Testament idiom for a, a hard place. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. I love the message rendering of this. Some of you know the message paraphrase of the Bible. It says this, I remember your youthful loyalty, our love as newlyweds. You stayed with me through the wilderness years, stuck with me through all the hard places. Israel was God's holy choice, the pick of the crop. Anyone who laid a hand on her would soon wish he hadn't. Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They didn't ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? I have italicized, where is the Lord? Because most scholars reading this think that what Jeremiah is doing here is he's echoing a phrase that would have been familiar in temple worship or in a festival. There might have been a liturgical call and response like at Gateway. When I say, peace of the Lord be with you, you say, or something like that. And sometimes you're more energetic than that when you say it, but not usually. And in Old Testament context, they might say, where is the Lord? And then, you know, there would be a variety of responses back. And he's saying, basically, you have forgotten, you know, the worship of me. Where is the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt and led you through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? Verse 7, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. You came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Okay, so he repeats, the priests do not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me, the leaders rebelled against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children, if this pattern keeps up. But listen, cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's been anything that's ever happened like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glorious God, the real God, for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And here's our analogy, so let's stand together. So my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And Father, I want to ask this morning that you would bring a powerful reminder that we need to connect with you. We confess this morning that we have sought other connections, I guess. I mean, God, we found other ways to satisfy our souls. And they don't really satisfy. And we end up empty-handed or empty-hearted or worried or discouraged or pursuing distraction or whatever 
makes us, helps us fill up that empty space. And God, we're sorry we offer ourselves to you this morning afresh and anew. Afresh and anew. We offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And I want to ask, Lord, that you would speak a word of reminder today to us. Because we can't get this, and we certainly can't keep it before us unless you're reminding and assisting and equipping and strengthening. And God, for any of us here this morning that don't really have a connection with you, we've maybe skirted around you, or we've skirted around religion, or maybe we're just curious, but I pray today that you would speak a word of life and that you would offer a taste of living water to the soul this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So, my people have committed two sins, Jeremiah says. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, forsaken God, and they've dug broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the ancient Near East, and especially Israel, was a profoundly agrarian culture. That means they were farmers. And the ideal location for a farm in the ancient Near East would have been a piece of property with a spring on it. A naturally feeding spring would have made it easy to keep crops nourished in dry times. And short of a spring, throughout the ancient Near East, and especially in Israel, it was their practice to, especially surrounding Jerusalem, there were limestone hills and farms would be built in and around the limestone hills, and they would go into the limestone hills and dig wells, I guess, or containers, out, literally out of the limestone. They would dig vats that were cisterns. And then they would line those cisterns to help them hold water, and they would pray for rain, and when it rained, the rain would collect in the cisterns, and then they could use those cisterns both for drinking, uh, but more importantly, to nourish their crops. And it was not atypical for if the cistern had not been dug well, or it had not been lined well, or simply over time, over the years, the cisterns would crack, and the water would leach out and become groundwater. And, you know, two days after a good rain, the farmer would go out to his big cistern, expecting to be able to bring his whole crew with him and carry buckets of water and put it on crops, and instead the cistern would be empty. This was an image that would have been very, very familiar to Jeremiah's hearers. Here's the meaning. Here's essentially what Jeremiah is trying to communicate to his audience and to us. Let's kind of break it up. One, you and I have a deep need to connect. Two, we will satisfy that need somehow. Three, the only reliable, sustainable satisfaction is a connection with God. So let's spend a few minutes this morning breaking that apart. You and I have a deep need to connect, or to use Jeremiah's imagery here, your land needs water. Or, more personally, you are thirsty. By nature, you're thirsty. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher and mathematician. He put it like this. What else does our craving and our helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss 
can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. You and I have a deep need to connect. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 4. We talked about this just a couple of months ago. One of my favorite instances in the New Testament where Jesus is in the middle of the day, he goes to a well in Samaria, and there's a woman there in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, getting water, which was very counter-customary. And Jesus, even more counter-customarily, asks the woman for water. This would not have happened in the ancient Near East, a, a man, especially one that considered himself a rabbi, talking to a woman in such a way, and especially a Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman, but he says to her, you know, give me some water. And she says, you know, sir, it's going to be really difficult. And Jesus says one of those really bizarre Jesus things. He says, hey, look, you know, here's the deal. When you drink this, and I know you need to, but when you drink this, you're just going to get thirsty again. You're going to have to come back to the well. But I can give you living water, and it will nourish your soul, and you'll never thirst again. What? She says, you don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? And they end up in this profound kind of exchange where Jesus addresses this. You have a deep need for connection. And I can meet that connection. In fact, I'm here to show you the, the Father. I'm not going to try to convince you of this truth this morning. As I said, I, most of us are here because we believe it. This morning, I want today to be a reminder. And my prayer has been that today would be a powerful reminder for you and I. We all know this to be true, but we forget. And listen, don't miss this. Much of what you and I struggle with, we struggle with because we forget this. We struggle because we forget that we have a deep need for connection. We forget that we are thirsty. Let me change the analogy just a little bit. I don't know if all of you know George Kahunga, but George, it's been a privilege to have George as a part of our congregation. If you don't know George, you should get to know George. George is living here from Burundi. And Burundi was one of the countries in Africa that experienced the horrible genocide of Tutu and Hutsi. And they were killing one another. Essentially, I think the phrase goes, George has told me, because of nothing more than the shape of their noses. Can you imagine that? That kind of prejudice. Of course, we have that same kind of checkered experience in our nation's history as well. George said something profound to me one day. George is an, an economist by study. And we were talking about Burundi. I was asking him questions about uh, his history. And uh, George said to me, Pastor Ed, they don't really kill one another because of the shape of their noses. They kill one another because they're hungry. When we get hungry, we do desperate things. We look at porn. We eat too much. We overwork. We buy lots of stuff because we're hungry. We don't look at porn because we need sex. We don't overeat because we need food. We don't overwork because we need money. We're hungry. We need connection. And we literally forget this. And when we do, we try to find connection somewhere else, somewhere other than where it can really be satisfied. Point two, you and I will satisfy that need somehow. To use Jeremiah's analogy, you will find a source of water. 
Israel longed to feel secure. And her rulers and spiritual leaders wanted to feel like they belonged among the important powers of the world. So they would look like the court of Assyria or look like the court of Egypt. They would practice their religion like Assyria or like Egypt. They sought trade and protection and alliances at this particular time with Assyria. This is what was going on that led Israel away from their God. They were looking for connection. Now look, when I say we need connection, I'm not just talking about spiritual pie-in-the-sky stuff. This need for connection drives our everyday lives and decisions, and we will find some way to get it that's real, or we will find a semblance of it. This affects what we do for a career. This affects who we marry. This affects how we spend our money. This affects how we spend our time. This need for connection drives everything. We will remember to satisfy our own souls through a real and dynamic connection with God, or we will find satisfaction by whoring ourselves out to lesser pleasures and pastimes that cannot really satisfy us. Now, those of you who were uncomfortable with my language, let me read the back half of Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll begin with verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke. Yoke was the instrument that would hold two cows together and allow them to pull a load, shared load. And it made the load more comfortable, actually. The imagery here is used throughout the prophets. We were yoked to God himself. He's helping us pull the load, and the yoke made the load more comfortable. We're able to do our lives because we're yoked to him. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and you tore off your bonds. And and you said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you laid down like a prostitute. I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. How can you say, I'm not defiled? I haven't run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley? Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her cravings, in her heat. Who can restrain her? Any male that pursues her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. We will remember to satisfy our own souls through a real and dynamic connection with God or we will find satisfaction by whoring ourselves out to lesser pleasures. This fundamental truth is the only explanation for addiction. There's no seven-year-old in the world that wakes up one day and thinks, I want to be a heroin addict when I grow up. This is the only explanation for why we can't always do what we know is best for us. We forget, either by choice or by force of circumstances, that we need connection. We are incomplete. We're lamps that must be plugged into a power source in order to shine. We're combustible engines that need a fuel source. We are a body that must be hydrated. We need living water. We need a connection to something outside of ourselves, and we will find it in the one source which can reliably sustain us, or we will find it in leaky sources that cannot sustain. I like the way Dwight Edward put it. He said, Sin has introduced the insane belief in all of us that our God-given thirst can be quenched in God-absent waters. 
illicit sex, drugs, materialism, alcoholism, egotism, religiosity, etc. And we either remember this and seek desperately for a real and dynamic connection with God, or we whore ourselves out in search of meaning and purpose and pleasure. Finally, the only reliable, sustainable satisfaction for our need is a connection with God. So we need a connection. We will find that connection somewhere. And the only reliable and sustainable satisfaction for our need is a connection with God. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we follow Jesus. In uh, that incident with the Samaritan woman beside the well, (laughs) at one point, after he said this really cool, provocative thing, you know, I'm going to give you this living water, she says, of course. He knows that she will. She says, okay. I mean, sir, hook me up with this water. And Jesus says, okay, you know, go call your husband and come back. You know, parentheses, I, I mean, I'll hook both of you up. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. And what he doesn't say, because this is a moment of grace, because he senses an open heart, what Jesus doesn't say is, you have been a she-camel spreading your legs under every spreading tree. You have sought connection everywhere but me. And what has it gotten you? How you feeling? Coming to get water in the middle of the day when no one is here because you're rejected and alone. Can we try something different this time? Sir, the woman says, trying to dodge that piece of truth, Okay, you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that she's asking a theological question. She's doing anything she can to get the conversation off of where Jesus has just gone. Jesus said, look, woman, a time is coming when he addresses it, when you're going to worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. A time is coming, has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's where we're headed. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. That's the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know, I know that all of this is going to be explained to us when Messiah comes. And then Jesus gives her the money. He says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the source of living water that you and I need for our souls. Jesus is what we're looking for and what we're longing for. So you need connection. You will find that connection somewhere. You know this to be true. But the only place that you can find that connection in a way that's sustainable and reliable is through a real and dynamic connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. All right, if you're here today and you don't have a connection with God, you've never wrapped your mind and heart around this and you've never given yourself to Him, then I want to encourage you to think about what we've talked about this morning. I want to encourage you to take this to Him and ask, if you're there, if you're real, 
make yourself known to me. I invite you to come in and be alive and be real in me and around me and through me. I want to connect with you. Jesus, would you show me who you really are? If you're here this morning and you do have a connection with God, then I want to encourage you to, maybe you make New Year's resolutions, maybe you gave that up a long time ago, but I want to encourage you to make 2015 a year of all-out, all-in connecting to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. That you'll make this the year that you really dive in. I don't care if you're 19 or 91. Make this the year that you dive in. If you're part of Gateway, then you know that we're convinced that to build a healthy soul, you really need a connection with God through a kind of worshiping relationship. You need a connection with God's people that help sustain that relationship and help keep you honest before Him. You need to grow up and you need to grow in. And then you need a connection with people who are outside of God's love. You and I need to grow out. We need to be sharing what God is depositing in us. We pretty formally divide our annual year up at Gateway into up-season, in-season, and out-season. The first season of Gateway is our up-season. So we're going to spend these next few months really talking about our connection with God. I want to give that a start this morning and tell you, if you're part of Gateway, I want to encourage you, I'm, I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to think about three things over the next few months. Number one, I want you to think about preparing for Lent this year. Lent is the season that leads up to the celebration of Easter, and we try to do some version of Lent each year at Gateway, more or less formally. I want you to think about seizing the Lenten season as an opportunity this year to really nurture your connection with God. Lent starts Wednesday, February 18th. We'll have an Ash Wednesday service to, to kick off the Lenten season. And I want you to think about as an individual or as a family what you can do this year during the Lenten season to nurture your connection with God. Specifically, Lent is often about simplicity and even sacrifice. I want you to think about this year what you as an individual or you as families can give up this year for Lent. So begin thinking, if you would, to prepare yourself for Lent. We'll begin Lent in the middle of February. We will end this series just before that. Second thing I want you to do is I want you to find a devotional model or pattern this year and set a goal for yourself. Let's do that today. Some of you may be thinking about it or, or you may have done it in the past, but an example would be you're going to try to read through the Bible in a year. And if that would be your goal, that's an ambitious goal, but I encourage it. If that were to be your goal, there, there are lots of Bible reading plans. You can find them on the internet. You know, Just go find some plan that works for you. You'll be reading three or four or five chapters of the Bible a day. It's doable and it is enriching. Find some devotional plan. I put together some devotional material a few years ago. Some of you have done parts of that with me. And I am encouraging college students in our 20s and early 30-somethings to do that with me. And I'm going to be actually talking to a group of you today, if any of you can come to D9. I talked to a group a couple of weeks ago. And I want to encourage you, if you're old, not looking for you. But if you're young and really cool and inquisitive, and as I said in the email, good-looking, then come to D9. I'd like to tell you more about this to give you 
a devotional model to go through, but find a pattern. Find a model for yourself this year and set a goal for yourself and work it. You know, maybe the goal needs to be modest. You're not in the habit of regular intake, regular spiritual drinking. So make it a goal for yourself that you're going to find some way to intake. You're going to find some way to take a spiritual drink three times a week or four times a week. But then you also need to fill that out with what that intake is going to be. Because if you just throw it out there, you'll wake up and you'll say, oh, okay, what am I going to do? And you'll, maybe you'll flip open the Bible and you'll turn to some boring passage and you're done before you even get started. So figure out some model, some pattern for yourself that will work. Listen, especially those of you who are considering devotional exercise that I'm trying to take some of you through, it's pretty ambitious. It's an exercise that begins with, you know, a lot of language and then a little bit of looking at the Bible. And then over time, that reverses and becomes more looking at the Bible and less language. And it's an exercise that's about 30, 35 minutes in the morning, six days a week. And then it's another 15 minutes at night right before you go to bed. I know that most of you are too busy to engage in an exercise like that. I want to challenge you. I think you're too busy not to engage in an exercise like that. I think you need connection. And if you don't satisfy that connection through a a real and dynamic relationship with God, then you will satisfy that connection somewhere else. And it will cost you just as much time or more, and it will not nourish you. Third thing I want you to think about doing is finding an accountability partner. You can't do this alone. You know, that's why we have Terry talk about small groups. Sometimes I don't feel like going to small group in the middle of the week, but we can't do this work alone. And I want to encourage many of you this year to find an accountability partner. Let me do this real quick. So if you go to the website, Character That Counts, it's just one example. But I think Bill Russell has shown these questions to a lot of us. And it's just a series of questions that some people have used to create accountability over the years? Have you spent time daily in scriptures and prayer? Have you had any flirtatious or lustful attitudes, tempting thoughts, or expose yourself to any explicit material which would not glorify God? Have you been completely above reproach in your financial dealings? Have you done your 100% best job working school? Have you told half-truths or outright lies, putting yourself in a better light? Have you taken care of your body through daily physical exercise and proper eating, sleeping habits? I don't want to answer those questions with any of you. But it's good for me to do so. And it is for you as well. There are sets of questions that more particularly address the issues of men, honestly. There are questions that will more particularly address the issues of women. I want to encourage you this year to find an accountability partner or two that you'll get with once a month or you'll get with every other week or you'll get with once a week and you'll ask these kinds of questions with one another and you'll respond to them honestly. And I want us to have some time this morning to respond to this. I really feel like none of us are here this morning by accident. I feel like God needed you and I to start this year off by being reminded that we need connection. That we will find that connection somewhere. And the only place where that connection can be satisfied reliably and sustainably is in a real dynamic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So 
let's spend some time this morning asking God what it is about this that He would say to us. What part of God's message today has He meant for you and and what part has He meant for me? We're going to take a minute and just get quiet for a sec and listen to Him. Let Him talk to us. And then we're going to sing a couple of songs just in response to Him. But uh, let's bow our head for a moment in prayer. And if you're willing, I want you to ask this morning, for what purpose have you drawn me here today, God? Where are the places that I have sought connection that really have not been sustainable or reliable? Where have I wasted time and energy? I want you to ask a more difficult question, if you would. Ask God to show you this morning the signs of a misaligned connection. Show you the signs in your life of connecting in the wrong place. You know, those signs are things like anger. You're angry, then you have a right to be, or worry, or depression, or fear, or secret habit that you continue to lean into. What are the signs of a misaligned connection in your life? Okay, stand with me if you would. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb said this. <laughs> I like this. Crabb said, At times I feel like a fish in the desert. I'm designed for water, but I'm stuck in the sand. So let's do all in our power this morning to jump into the water. We're going to sing a couple of songs. first one is, We Are Hungry. It's a confession. Let's do the bridge just real quick. We lift our holy hands up. We want to touch you. We lift our voices higher and higher and higher to do you. Okay, I want to get you this morning a little out of your comfort zone, or at least out of my comfort zone. That's one of the images that the Old Testament especially uses for worship is it's an individual worshiper with their hands up to God. So I want you to try this morning to do your best imitation of a Pentecostal. For some of you this is easy, but when we get to this bridge and when we sing, we lift our holy hands up. I want you to lift your holy hands up. Now for some of you, for people like Jan and I, this is weird. If you're tall, you feel like you're way above everybody else. So you can cheat, you can do that. Or one hand is how I usually do it. But let's close our eyes during this and let's go for it. Just as an expression, let your body and your mind and your hands carry your heart. So let's go to him this morning. Let's, we can go for this in worship. So we lift our holy hands. Here we go. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming. Happy New Year. Make sure you try to connect with someone that you don't know well on your way out. Thanks so much. Go in peace.